Welcome to the Fun Time Program. I'm your host, Vivica Volt, and this is my lovely co-host, John Andrew Fredrickson. And today we are very excited to welcome back into the studio, Dean Frolics. Hey, everyone. Dean, you are the first Reoccurring. person to come on twice. You are officially the, the, the number one most requested podcast guest on our on our show so far. Oh my gosh. By you two though. Yes. Yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Great. We so really had to be back. audience requests. <laughs> so far we are our biggest fans. So. Amazing. I really like our podcast. <laughs> I really like your podcast too. It's actually really funny how much we're sitting in the editing booth and just like cracking up at ourselves and just loving every minute of it. <laughs> oh my God. When I like so I edited our uh, first interview with you all by myself. It's the first one I did all by my lonesome. Hey. So if anyone's yeah. confused as to why that editing doesn't look quite as smooth as it normally does. I thought it looked great. I did it and John didn't. I thought it looked great. John normally does all of our editing because he's really great at that. Um, but great. I was just sitting there like I was just sitting in this room by myself, like laughing my ass off at like all of our stupid shit and like all of the same shit I was laughing at the first time around. I was cracking up and had the exact same mm-hmm, reactions. Mm-hmm. Same here. Oh my God. It was so funny. That's the funniest part is when you're listening to it a second time and you have the same thoughts and you're like exact about same. to say it to yourself and then you you say it on camera and you're just like, okay. Hey, at least I'm consistent. Yeah. It's very entertaining. So let's talk about, we, we had a two and a half hour uh, interview with you uh, two two weeks ago, three weeks ago now. Yeah, and um, yeah, we had an Almost amazing a conversation. A month, and yeah. we scheduled the second guest right after you. And we had to. Uh, I don't want to say we had to cut it short, but we did have to cut it short. I mean, honestly, we should probably should have cut it short at like two and a half hours anyway. Anyway, but we still had a lot more to talk about. There's so much more. Yeah, so we're back. I'm Here so, we are. I'm so glad to be back. Second round. I, I I'm dying to know. Like, let's just jump into this. What what is relationship? Anarchy. That's, just that's like, like a loaded topic. Board. Like, I need to know what this is. I don't know. <laughs> There's a lot going on in that in lot. those two words there. Yeah. <laughs> what are we talking about? So relationship anarchy falls under for myself, um, and the way that I think about this falls under the same umbrella of ethical non-monogamy that polyamory does. Mm-hmm. Um, the way that I differentiate between polyamory polyamory and relationship anarchy is that relationship anarchy with each relationship that structure is going to be defined individually Mm -hmm. um versus polyamory where i kind of think of it as a more romantic based structure where folks are in like multiple romantic relationships at Mm -hmm. once Versus relationship anarchy, where relationships don't necessarily have to be romantic in order to be on the same playing field as, let's say, a, a platonic friend or a platonic partner. Right. So your best friend is still a relationship mm-hmm. in the same way that like your primary partner is a relationship. It's yeah. just two different types of relationships, but they get prioritized equally. Yeah. So, for instance, people who I'm sleeping with and have a romantic engagement with as well, hold the same significance in my life as, for instance, my best friend who is a platonic non-sexual relationship in my life. And in the same way, I like, I try, not always great, try to prioritize my relationship with myself 
on the same Ooh. playing field as my romantic or platonic or whatever other kind I, like artistic relationships. I'm not going to let that one just slide right by. All right, let's come back. I to love it. that. Yeah. You're going to prioritize your relationship with yourself. Have you? Have you not been doing that, John? It's not. This isn't just a question. This isn't just about me. No, but I mean, like your reaction <laughs> to it, it seems like. OK, the reason the reason that um hits home for me is that it's something I've been learning about this year Mm -hmm. and it's a phenomenal concept that starts to sound really obvious. The more you think about it, the more you talk about it, but you, but then you, you know, talk to other people about it and you recognize how little people think about that Mm -hmm. and that what we're taught to kind of like subjugate yourself to, for, for other people's sake. Yeah. And that valuing yourself as, as its own relationship is, is so important. A hundred percent. What was your journey to that? Um, well, okay. So my mom has always said you need two individual complete people in order to create a whole relationship as opposed to the whole, whole, like two halves make a whole type of thing. Mm. Um, so that's, that's something that has always stuck with me from Um, a young age then. Yeah. That's amazing. Uh, and I, mentioned this in the last podcast. I think I mentioned this in the last podcast. I was a serial dater for fucking years. Um, Meaning one at a time. And and that was the only person. For a while, it was just like I was a serial monogamous and I would date one person at a time um, and jump from relationship to relationship. And then when I discovered that it was possible to date more than one person at the same time and not be cheating, um, I was like, oh, yeah, let's do that. So I just jumped from like partner to partner or like had multiple partners at the same time at any given time. Um, And over the past and over and was defining myself as polyamorous up until a couple years ago, Um, at which point I started recognizing that my platonic relationships and my um, chosen family relationships were taking more of a priority and I wanted them to be taking more of a priority. And I also wanted to be focusing on myself more. And I recognized that I wasn't engaging in as many romantic relationships as I was engaging in platonic relationships and didn't want, and like, yeah, start just started exploring areas that weren't codified as polyamory. Mm-hmm. Um, and started engaging with people who didn't necessarily identify as polyamorous specifically. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, and that's it. I think that's it. Yeah. So, so th- that's relationship anarchy. It means that it's more than just, so polyamory is, is related to like, um, I mean, it literally translates to multiple loves, Yeah. but polyamory is really more of an umbrella term for it's kind of a shorthand of saying ethical non-monogamy in a lot of ways and a lot of people do polyamory differently some people do it right some people do it wrong but polyamory is really just having the space to have multiple relationships both sexual and or emotional with multiple people at the same time without causing anyone to feel distressed because they feel like oh this person's cheating on me or this person's going to leave me right for this other person or what have you. So you have the ability to have multiple engaged relationships with people. Right. And and that makes sense to me. I'm trying to figure out how relationship anarchy differs from that. So for instance, my relationship with Vivica is a more or less platonic one. We engage in kink with one another at times, 
But for instance, if Vivica and I had plans for a Monday night and then and and like this, this is respect, period. But also if Vivica and I had plans for, let's say, a Monday night and a romantic partner messaged me and was like, hey, do you want to hang out that night or something? The importance that I place on hanging out with Vivica is the same importance as I would place on, for instance, if I were hanging out with a romantic partner and a friend messaged me and was like, hey, do you want to hang out on this night? It's like, no, mm-hmm. I have plans with so-and-so and those plans are important. Mm-hmm. Or for instance, like bringing, bringing my best friend to a family vacation mm-hmm. and that not being treated as less significant a relationship than if I were bringing a romantic partner. Mm, right. Interesting. And and that is outside of the umbrella of polyamory. And that's why relationship anarchy is a different term that encompasses more than just polyamory encompasses. Uh, I think it's just a different way of doing ethical non-monogamy because yeah. like their ethical non-monogamy is the big umbrella and polyamory is one facet of it. And relationship anarchy is another facet of it. Mm-hmm. And they're kind of two sides of the same coin. Like, you're still having multiple relationships with multiple people, but it's how you're prioritizing relationships. A lot of times in polyamory, there's a hierarchical, uh, I might be saying that word. That was perfect. Nailed it. Hierarchical. There's two cuz. Hierarchical. Sure. Okay. Um, there's a hierarchy in a lot of polyamory relationships where you have your primary partner and then you have like secondary partners, tertiary partners, and you have kind of this hierarchy. So primary partners get like the most priority. Whereas in relationship anarchy, everyone gets the same amount of priority. That's, that makes total sense. That's why it's anarchy. Yeah. Because you're removing hierarchy. There is, it is also important to note that not everyone who does engage in polyamory does hierarchy. Does exactly. Mm. Like, for instance, when I was still identified, when I was still using polyamory as like an identifier or a label, I was engaging in solo polyamory in which I was my own primary partner and I would have other partners, but I didn't want to cohabitate with a partner. I, I had no interest in primary, secondary, tertiary. Like I didn't didn't want to engage in any kind of hierarchy. But there are there are individuals who that is their polyamorous model. But yeah, yeah like ENM, ethical non-monogamy is the umbrella term for anything that falls under that, which could be anything from swinging to polyamory to relationship anarchy so to just open relationships. Yeah, the don't ask, don't tell. Yeah, although I honestly don't see don't ask, don't tell as all that ethical. I'm going to go ahead and throw I mean, that yeah, one out there. Like, to me, I don't, I don't ever want to be in a relationship like that. But if that's your agreement, that's your agreement. Sure. I mean, I just, I guess my issue is like, I personally cannot engage with someone who is in a don't ask, don't tell yeah, situation. Same. Because there's always, especially like before the world was fucked, there was always that chance of like, ah, I might run into this person with their primary partner in like social setting. Yeah. And then I have to pretend like I don't have any relationship with this person Hmm. because their primary doesn't know who I am. Yes. And that just always felt really gross to me. Yeah. Mm. Um, Because I like to get to know my metas. Like, if What's you're a meta? a meta is my partner's partner. Mm. So someone that I'm not dating that is dating one of my partners. Um, So I like to get to know those people because if I like my partner, I'm going to assume that I'm going to like my partner's partner because like they like me. So this person is probably like, I don't know, pretty close to someone that I would like. So you don't think that there's inherent or expected um, rivalry? 
Uh, there shouldn't be. Or I guess, can there be? I think that there, there can, can there, there can be. Yeah. There can be, but that usually signifies um, insecurity. Yeah, insecurity or some level of toxicity within the relationship. Mm. Um, is that like a badge of honor in the E and M communities? Being like, I'm not jealous, and if that person is jealous, therefore they're not as good at this as I am. Uh, no, not really. It's just, it, I'm, I'm loving your face right now because you're just like, what? What is? What is he even talking about? Like, no, 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 I'm just, I'm just reacting. This is my, this is my real life reaction as the thoughts go through my head. Yeah. Just listening. Like, so the thing is, like, even with the most experienced couples and or like triads or what have you, there's going to be jealousy and there's going to be some level of insecurity. It's how that jealousy and insecurity gets addressed and oh, that makes sense. gets taken care of because the jealousy is arising because a person feels insecure in some facet of their relationship. That makes sense. So once you address whatever is causing that insecurity, it should be really easy to get dismiss that jealousy and say, mm -hmm. oh, okay, well, I'm not leaving you for this other person. What is the root of this insecurity? Okay, yeah. well, once you find the root, you can go look back and say, oh, okay, well, I have no real reason to feel insecure. I've been reassured. I feel secure again. And then that jealousy can be dismissed. Whereas in most like monogamous couples, that insecurity doesn't usually get addressed. And right. so it just keeps building up. And mm. Uh, bubbling over another another and this isn't separate but like the way that I kind of think about jealousy is just it's it's an insecurity but it's also like maybe a lacking in something so if I'm in a relationship with someone and they start seeing someone new and I'm feeling all kinds of ways and I can sit with myself and try and figure out why I'm feeling all kinds of ways. And I start to realize, oh, well, I haven't had sex with this partner of mine in like two months. And now here they are having sex with someone else. And I'm still not getting that attention. And I feel like I'm lacking something in the relationship. Mm -hmm. And that's where that is coming from. Yeah. For instance, or in the same uh, vein, if I'm seeing someone and like we initially started off having like a really fun, romantic, cuddly kind of relationship and then it kind of turned to like just sexual and then they start seeing someone new and that new person is getting all of the fun, cutesy cuddles and fun dates and everything. And I like just get booty calls. I'm like, oh, cool. Well, do you not want to be seen in public with me anymore? Yeah. And then. I have to ask myself, okay, so do I actually miss that? Or is like, am I just sad that I'm not getting that same type of attention? Yeah. Or then it turns around where sometimes I'll have a conversation with that person and be like, okay, so can we just like take a quick look at like what our relationship is right now? Because this is how it started and this is where it's at right now. And I kind of wish that it would go a little bit closer back to what it originally started as hmm. because I liked that. Yeah. And that's what I was drawn into. Interesting. Do you feel that under the, um, the ethical, ethical non-monogamy umbrella, when you're treating your relationships in this way, it makes it easier to kind of have some ebbs and flows in relationships, or maybe you're kind of more excited. I don't more excited is the right word, but spending more time with one partner for a given period of time. And then you kind of reconnect with another partner. Is that, or, or, or is it sort of like, you're excited about a partner at the beginning and then things kind of maybe slowly peter out and eventually you're just kind of seeing more of your other partners and that one just kind of disappears or I mean, because it could be anything. I think I think that can happen. I actually just had an, like an ins I have an instance going on right now that I'm going to use. Mm. So I started I met a new person on Tinder in September I in September 
and we like we're seeing each other about once a week. The sex was great. The chemistry is great. I really enjoy hanging out with them. And the closer we got to the election, the like the lower my libido was. Yeah. And sounds right. Yeah. And I was just like stressed as fuck, engaged with work, not able to think about anything sexual at all. And I and like we had just talked on Saturday, I think, about making plans for this week. And then like I think it was Sunday night I was walking home and I got a text from them that was essentially like, hey, so I think we're on different pages and that what well, something I think we're on different pages. If you'd like to just be friends, I'm cool with that. And my response was, oh, shit, I'm so sorry you feel that way. Like, I don't feel like we're necessarily on different pages or something to that effect. And I said to them, you know, I've been really stressed and frazzled lately. And I apologize if that has come across as disinterest. Mm. It's not that I'm uninterested. It's that I just literally like there are nights when I'm going to bed and I'm like, I wish I could orgasm right now because that would help me sleep. And I just can't get it up Mm. because (laughs) this country makes it real hard to fuck. Mm. So I said this to them and they were like, oh, that's actually really surprising. I thought you were just not interested anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, So we scheduled a date to like sit and talk next week. But yeah, it happens like there there are ebbs and flows in us individually and there are ebbs and flows in the environment that we're in. Mm-hmm. Um, which will also because like each relationship is an individual relationship and each person who you're relating to, you're going to be deriving different things from. And we need different things at different times, that which is sense. which is why ethical non-monogamy, which is why relationship anarchy makes so much sense as a relationship sh- model in my mind because I'm like I can't ever expect one person to be able to fulfill all of the things that I would need in a partner in a family member in a lover in a friend and I can't be expected to fulfill all those things for any person either like that's it takes the pressure off yeah 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 um, there's also the new relationship energy that a lot of people experience yeah. where you kind of get like all a flutter about someone and you get really excited because like there's this new person in your life and like you're really excited about like the newness of someone and sometimes that new relationship energy lasts for a week sometimes it lasts for a few months sometimes it lasts for a year um it really depends on the relationship but most people in non-monogamous relationships can what is the word i'm looking for can recognize that's that word (laughs) can recognize that new relationship energy is kind of a passing phase and meaning people that you're in other relationships with right So like if I were to get into a relationship with someone, I usually tell my primary partner all about it. And like they recognize that I have like that new relationship energy and I'm like really excited. So you're talking to your your other partners pretty early on when you've met somebody new. Yeah, I mean, I like to keep my, especially my primary, I like to keep them in the loop about like everything going on, not just because I think that like they should know every single person that I'm dating, but more like for sexual safety purposes. And also just because I like to have someone to talk to about it. And I feel like it feels more honest, just getting it out there like, hey, by the way, I'm seeing someone new or I'm sleeping with someone new. Mm -hmm. um, And here's how serious or not serious I think it might be. And like, here's where I kind of project things going if things go well. But like, I feel like it also helps them feel a little bit more secure in our relationship because they don't feel like I'm hiding this mm, new person makes sense. from them. And they don't feel like I'm like replacing them with someone new because it's just, oh, yeah. So here's this new person. Here's like our interactions. Here's how I feel about it. 
etc but like i'll very much be like very like schoolgirl kind of excited like oh my god this person's so cute like look at their picture and oh my god they're so much fun like are they so adorable and my primary is just like oh yeah they're really cute like maybe they'd be into a threesome (laughs) how many partners do you have at a time where you are telling them about all your new partners um that, that like are at that level where you're having those constant conversations with them for me i think the most partners that i've had where i've informed them of new partners was five partners that got informed of new partners and those had all been that's a lot of texts to send out do you do like a group chat do you just mass email everybody no i mean like two of those coming from somebody who can't keep track can't keep track of conversations with one person (laughs) two of those people were a couple so that made it a lot easier so it's really like telling three people okay but it It's also just it's a matter of like how serious I am with a partner, because like if I'm just like sleeping with someone, I might mention to them like, hey, by the way, I'm sleeping with another new person or what have you. Just again, for sexual safety purposes, like they've been tested. I've been tested. Here's when we both last got tested, just in case you are concerned, etc. But like outside of that, I won't really mention like whether or not it's like a new like relationship relationship like this is going to be romantic versus this is just like a fuck buddy situation yeah until like i know that the person that i'm talking to is more than just a fuck buddy it's a lot of work keeping up that level of communication with that many different people yeah that sounds stressful uh you know actually i feel like it's because it's just a matter of like radical honesty in that like i'm being very candid and i'm being very has nothing to do with that for me for me it's literally just a bandwidth question like and that's something i've noticed about you and something that we differ on like such a a great insane degree is that you just have this insane bandwidth for conversation with people and for me it's like i can barely handle talking to like one or two different people a day you know what i mean because i'm just like i've got so much going on in my head i'm trying to get so much done and i have to step away from what i'm doing to like give that person you know my focus for for a period of time and make them feel like they're heard and that's that's just really hard for me. And it's amazing to hear that people are able to do that with many different people. Yeah. I mean, I genuinely love people. And I think sometimes I prioritize um, other people and my relationships with other people slightly to my own detriment in that, like, I just have time management issues. So sometimes I don't realize, like, ah, fuck, I need to stop texting right now and actually go get dressed. Um, but at the same time, like, I never feel like time spent engaging with people that I care about is time wasted. Mm. So even if I'm late to something because I forgot to stop texting or like, as long as I don't lose a job about it, I don't feel like it was time misspent. Yeah, that makes sense. How about you? Do you, do you, uh, do you see five different people at the same time in a serious way? Not at this point in time. You haven't leveled up to that that level yet? <laughs> yeah, I don't. I But the thing is, I don't necessarily. So, so that's the thing with like relationship anarchy where I, I am essentially seeing five people at the same time now, right? Because mm. I have really close and full relationships with people in my life that Vivica can attest to where like last week for my birthday, I had a party with I think it was five people mm. and two people weren't able to attend. And it was supposed to be it was supposed to be literally just me and five of my closest friends. Right. Mm. Those are the five people who I'm essentially seeing. Those right. are the five people who I talk to on a regular basis here in New York City. Right. That doesn't okay, that doesn't account for my close friends who don't live here. Right. But those are essentially people who take up the same bandwidth mm. as a romantic partner might. Mm-hmm. But that's also like, yeah. 
that's that's that. It's amazing but, to hear but, because you often hear uh, complaints from people in, in their late 20s and, and early 30s that kind of all of their friends have grown up and had kids and moved away and they don't stay in touch with them anymore or whatever other you know reason it is for that. And I think probably the underlying issue there is that people just don't learn how to maintain relationships and put in the effort over time as the things that kept you together, whether it was through work or school or, or some other activities that forced you to see each other every day and you considered yourselves really good friends, you never developed that skill set where it's like, I have to really put work into this yeah. when those things that draw us together uh, evaporate. Yeah. And it's it's awesome to hear, you know, how you talk about like, yeah, you actually have to like make the effort and, and build those relationships. Absolutely. Even if they're not, you know, romantic. But the thing is that like we talked about this in the last podcast, right? I've moved through at least five different friend groups. Right. right. Many, many of those people have grown up, gotten married, had kids, whatever. Mm -hmm. But like that's that's a specific path that their life is taking them down. Fantastic. And I do have friends who are currently married with kids and we stay in touch as best we can. But I, I'm child free. I'm never going to have biological children. And I'm also just like, most of my friends are child free. Mm -hmm. So that makes it a lot easier. I do absolutely have friends who have grown up, gotten married, had kids and gone off. And like our lives may not stay as intertwined as we did before because the bulk of their life is being spent with a partner and with children. And mm. I mean, all the people I'm thinking of are in heteronormative relationships. And so that's and there, so our lives just differ greatly. Right. right. And, and that tends to feed into why people lose contact, because like you're a parent, you're raising a child and you're a spouse. You're in a full time relationship. Mm -hmm. mm. That's a lot of work. Mm. You're not going right? to want to come hang out at a party yeah. till like four in the morning yeah. with me. And that's cool. That's totally whatever. cool. Yeah. We'll touch base when we can and we'll hang out when we can. Of course. But for the most part, the friends who are like the friends who are currently in my life are child free. I like that phrase. Yeah. And <laughs> are and like we have. It almost sounds like STD for you or something. Yeah, like I didn't I mean, catch that one. Honestly, <laughs> I mean, what are children if not STDs that not just viruses. take on a life you know what of it their is? own? You know what it is? It's come being raised as pets. Yeah, that's what it is. <laughs> Crotch goblins. <laughs> what? I'm, I'm sorry. sorry what's the difference? What's the difference between an STD and a child? They're both lifelong commitments. Yeah. No, not necessarily. Not STDs. 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 But the you thing can get is, rid of an STD. you can you can get rid of <laughs> a child. All of those things with a pill. True. Well played. True. True. But true. Are you just gonna be out here making abortion jokes? Is that's what we're doing today? Hmm. Worst. Maybe. Hmm. Hmm. So Phyllis Schlafly. Oh my God. Oh my God. Yeah, are we, are we gonna go there? Right, we're gonna do we a go whole there? like breakdown on behind the bastards <laughs> really quick. Shout Robert out. Evans, you should come on this podcast. Yo, I have actually been thinking about reaching out to him and being him. like because like he all of his guests are people who do like have other podcasts. Mm -hmm. And so I was considering reaching out to him and asking him if I could be like one of the guests on his his show oh my god and please because like, nice. like i would love to be on behind the bastards talking about like one of these fucking bastards oh my god i would listen to the shit out of that i just did uh i just listened, listened to, to the two-part jordan peterson episode haven't heard it yet oh my god so i knew that jordan Pe peterson was i don't know who it is oh he is like the He's... king of men's right activism i take slight umbrage at that he is okay. So he's a, a psychologist at some university in Toronto, 
And for years, he's been uh, filming his lectures. James Peterson? Them, uh, Peter Johnson? No. No. Um, Johnson Peters? <laughs> <laughs> oh, now I can't even remember his name. You totally confused me. <laughs> Peterson. Peterson. What is it? Peterson? John Peterson. Stop. You're confusing I, I me. I don't know. Jordan. Jordan, Jordan Peterson. Um, he he, he became quite famous uh, for... Uh, putting his lectures on YouTube and built a really big audience of people who really identified with the message that he was, uh, you know, basically putting out there, which was all about like personal responsibility and how you have to sort of clean your room is his biggest thing. Like if you really want to deal with, you know, depression and with like feeling like you're not effective as an agent in the world, you start with cleaning your own house. You start okay. with getting your house in order. You start with making yourself, you know, a better uh, actor in the world and then you can go out into the world and actually, you know, be a, a, a good person. Um, he then started doing these interviews with uh, uh, Sam Harris, um, where he debated religion with Sam. Sam's a, a renowned atheist. And um, they had the weirdest conversation about, like, what reality actually is. And Jordan <sighs> basically believes that, like, the Bible is kind of like literal truth. And it teaches all these amazing stories. And we can learn so much from it because it's like the hero story and it's it's embedded so deep He's, in us. Jordan and, Peterson is obsessed and with the hero story. The hero story. And and everything that that has made our society good comes out of the Judeo-Christian values that the Bible gives us. Um, so that's his sort of like religious side. But then he just became really famous for some reason because in Canada they were trying to pass a law that, according to him, compelled people to have to use uh, different pronouns. Here's the actual law. Um, what it was is if you were a professor or a teacher of some sort, you were required to refer to your students by the pronouns they, the students gave you. Okay. So you had to actually use their given pronouns. And he felt that that was compelled speech and that that went against free speech. And oh. so he spoke out against it and then okay. became very famous as a result of that. He started blowing up all over YouTube. All the news channels would bring him on and he would debate with people about it and he traveled the world. And then he started writing some books, um, 12 steps he's to leading a good about it. Oh, to, to leading a good life. And yeah, he's just he's become a very controversial figure. He uh, ended up getting really really sick last year and his spending daughter a, gave him covid no this is way before oh, covid oh right. he spent a year in 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 russia he it, did no he got addicted to benzos uh -huh. that's what it was and so he went to was, have experimental treatment in russia that they wouldn't give him in the united states right um then he came back and he got covid now he's on an all meat diet with his daughter who also has her own podcast where they talk about only eating meat okay but it's really funny because his daughter at 17 went and went on an all meat diet and then proceeded to need a knee and hip replacement at 17 <gasps> because she got super fucking sick and they didn't realize that oh you know maybe add some goddamn vegetables to your diet no I, she she has an underlying issue and that was the reason she was doing the meat diet i'm not sure that you can blame the meat diet for the issues that she's had anywho here's how she gave him covid she <laughs> went clubbing in canada in the midst of a fucking pandemic and then came home and gave her dad covid and he got super sick about it and i like that to me just is delicious irony. Um, but also, so uh, Behind the Bastards did like a really in-depth look, which again, that's kind of the beauty of Behind the Bastards is that they do do very in-depth looks. So they talked about his um, education and they talked about like his background and like he has a background in uh, philosophy and psychology. But like one of the things that he was very keen on studying is how to sway people and he got really good at learning how to sway people and the thing is like the way he talks about hitler 
he never talks about Hitler in a negative capacity. He seems to kind of admire Hitler in a way. And he talks about Trump and Hitler exactly the same way. He was just a real good public speaker, y'all. He was just such he a good public speaker. Good public speaker. So good. I've never actually heard Peterson talk about Hitler. It's interesting. He talks extensively about how the left doesn't call out the atrocities of communism in the 20th century. Very aware of that. I've not heard him talking about Hitler in a positive light. Mm -hmm. I'd like I'd like to see that clip. Okay, well, I mean, you can listen to Behind the Bastards yourself. (laughs) I just spent two hours of my life educating myself on Jordan Peterson, and I'm giving you the cliff notes. I've listened to many hours of Jordan Peterson. But I'm but, not sure I mean, we're here he, to debate it today. Right. So <laughs> anywho, like one of the things that he's incredibly good at is uh, swaying people. And like when he was like 12, he said like he watched the funeral for JFK. And his reaction to that was, I want to have a funeral like that. Like, I hope I die like that, where people come out and honor me the same way. And do you think he's alone in that? He also wanted to be prime minister of Canada at like eight or nine and still to this day thinks that he should be prime minister of Canada. And also he thinks that his wife has prophetic dreams and that because of his wife's prophetic dreams that he is going to save the world. Okay. Yeah, he's not exactly the most sane motherfucker that's out there, but like he's out there. And he's also made a whole lot of money on being super fucking transphobic. So... Don't you just love to see it? Fucking love it, right? Oh, my He's God. He's just the best. So, you know, fuck Jordan Peterson. Okay. Um, How did we get on this topic? Because behind we were talking, the bastards. Yeah, we are talking about Behind the Bastards, which, <laughs> God damn it, John. Evans. I tweeted him. Listen I to at, Behind the Bastards already. Listen to Behind the Bastards. If I get a minute where I'm not either shooting this podcast editing this podcast or doing other work i, I will, will literally I will sit literally here and edit it. like all of the fucking footage that we need to edit. while i sit here and listen to behind the yep. bastards all right it's Deal. really good it's After really this, good you're at the editing table done and i'm listening to podcasts done. All night. and i'm ordering dinner yep we Great. can order dinner right now <gasps> we can invite the pizza delivery boy into our studio and hot <laughs> hey that's that's one toy away from a porn <laughs> I don't know. We have the gear for a porn too. Hey. Indeed. <laughs> Look at these couches. We, What's we, up? We are definitely talking about starting an after after hours version of this podcast. Ooh. Fun time program after dark. Jackie, the Jackie episode kind of was. <laughs> Y'all get an OnlyFans. Then we get footage of the of the flogging and stuff. And I'm just saying definitely. that on the OnlyFans. We went way off topic yeah and we're gonna come back to abortion jokes and friends and relationship (laughs) anarchy and stuff what is intersectional feminism oh i could actually fucking answer this one this is like i didn't even see this one on the board but god this is just made for me um so intersectional feminism so feminism in itself is basically the it really should be relabeled as humanism because it is the um ideology that all people deserve equal rights and that women specifically have not have been disenfranchised from having equal rights as men. So this also brings um, other genders under that umbrella. Everyone who is not cisgendered has had a disenfranchisement against them of not having the same rights as someone who is cisgendered, especially cisgendered males. So how does it differ from human rights? Oh, my God. Let me finish my motherfucking statement. Sure. 
So where you get the intersectionality is when it comes to feminism, you can be non cisgendered, you can be black, or you can be multiple different types of minorities. And those different types of minorities intersect. So for me, I am black, I am queer, and I am a woman. So that's three different minoritized uh there's that word again identities thank I like you it. identities three different minoritized identities and so those three identities intersect with my feminism so if i am engaging in with my feminism they're different from your feminism so your feminism is one thing those identities are another thing and they're intersecting you no know, not really like yes and no so what it is is i have those three identities as my person and when I'm engaging with feminism and the ideology, like the ideology of feminism, I will only. Which is what? Let me fucking finish. So there are different ways that feminism presents itself. And when I'm engaging, especially online with people who consider themselves feminist, if they do not recognize that being a black woman has disadvantages from just being like different, different, different disadvantages than just being a woman, then I recognize that they are not intersectional and therefore I stop engaging because they are not engaging in good faith. If they don't recognize that being queer has different disadvantages than just being a woman, again, they're not engaging in good faith. And it actually is considered white feminism mm -hmm. um, because white feminism is usually anti-queer anti-POC, specifically anti-Black, and absolutely anti-trans. Mm -hmm. um, so those types of feminists believe that white women, specifically, should be given equal rights as men, but don't see how Black women are being held back more, or how Indigenous women are being held back even more than Black women, or don't see how trans women, one, are women, fucking get that shit through your goddamn heads trans women are fucking women and they also don't see trans rights as being anywhere near as important as women's rights because they see women's rights as being the end-all beat-all thing that they should be fighting for and if a trans woman wants rights then she should stop being trans which is stupid so intersectional just simply means more inclusionary so can i jump on here with yeah. a little bit of my women and gender studies classes. Yeah. Okay, cool. So Kimberly Speaking Crenshaw, Jordan, that was the oh, biggest Kimberly thing that Jordan Peterson hates. Yeah. Kimberly Crenshaw coined the term, uh, yeah. intersectionality, okay. the term in the eighties, mm -hmm. I want to say. Yep. When, Kimberly Crenshaw. Yes. Okay. Um, when there, I, I don't remember the cases that were being brought to court, but the discrimination against black men, and against women, white women, were being addressed in court. And Kimberly brought forward the fact that black women weren't being taken into account with these um, court proceedings because they were being they they were being included, quote unquote, included under the women, the white women um bringing were the court proceedings actually specifying white women or were they just using women as an umbrella term and thinking that they were including w women who were not white probably the second one okay and why do how do we know then that that, that it is exclusionary of women so who are not white? if we look at the affirmative care act is that what it is 
I think so. Um, that affordable care act. No, no affirmative care act. It, the Obama one. No. no, I don't remember them. But because I'm I'm really bad with the names and the history and stuff. Yeah. But the the amendment that made it so that there are like equal hiring rights. John is Googling. Googling. Thank you. We'll see. It's not the Affirmative Care Act. It's not affirmative action. Affirmative action. It might be affirmative action. Yeah. Yeah. We, we which is a general term. Out. It's not referring to specific legislation, but affirmative action refers to a set of policies and practices within a government organization seeking to include particular groups. So it's not referring yes. to a specific one, but so, that's the general but, term. But affirmative action yeah. greatly benefited white women hmm. over any black women, type of minority, any yeah. other type of minority. Interesting, because the only place I've come across it is where it's usually debated is in college. College admissions. Right. So which college admissions, tends to target minorities. hiring, etc. Mm. Those are the two things that are coming to mind. Right. Uh, but black women were not and are not being included in the anti-discrimination policies and also aren't being included under the anti-discrimination stuff that black men are bringing to the courts because they are fighting sexism and racism. Right. Mm -hmm. so, massage noir. Yes. Massa um, massage noir. Have you not heard this term before, John? No. So massage noir is misogyny against black women specifically. Huh. So it's a term where you are not just anti-woman, you are anti-black women. Mm -hmm. And you treat black women distinctly different than you treat white women. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you see a lot of massage noir when people are referring to black female artists, especially like Lizzo or Beyonce or Rihanna, where they get so much more hate and they have to be so much more perfect mm -hmm. to pass in society because, oh, well, their makeup wasn't good enough or, oh, I don't like the way she wore her hair that day or, oh, my God, did you see how slutty her clothes were that day? Like she has to Who be was saying these things. Where are these things? Coming from? Oh, my God. It's all over everywhere. The internet. Everywhere. Huh. But so like, for instance, if, um, the, you know, there there are scientific papers that show that women in politics, for instance, don't have are, are facing a way different set of standards than men in politics. Right. Mm -hmm. But black women face a much different standard than white women, for instance. Like, right. uh, Who's enforcing these standards? It, nobody individually. It's, mm. it's, it's white systemic. supremacy. It's systemic. It's everyone and no one it's at the same time. the way the laws are written and also the way the laws are enforced based on how they're written. Do you have any examples of that? Oh, there's... Like there's such a wide array of examples that it's actually really hard to narrow it down to one specific thing. Like, OK, so perfect throwback. Call back to our uh, hair episode because hair discrimination disproportionately affects black women specifically. Mm -hmm. And that is a form of massage noir. But it's not that it's explicitly written in any one of our laws. That employers are allowed to discriminate against black women for their hair. Or that it even specifies black women specifically, but the target is almost always black women. Now, occasionally it does affect black men. Occasionally it does affect non-black POC. Occasionally it does affect other people, but it's highly targeted towards black women specifically. So our hairstyles are seen as ghetto or urbanized or unprofessional even though they're the exact same hairstyles that becky is trying to wear to the office and getting praised for so that is a form of massage noir that is becky huh becky goddamn becky. becky with the good hair get the fuck out of here 
but like it's do you think it's rude to use individual people's names like that to represent a stereotype no no why because it's not an individual person but it is many individual people who are being lumped into that stereotype without necessarily being in any way connected to it the thing is you can be a becky without like you can be named becky and not be a becky the same way that you can be named karen and not be a karen that's like saying you can (laughs) be a derogatory term without actually being a derogatory term like I don't want to use the words, but I, I've heard people actually say those specific things when it comes to the F word uh, referring to gay people. You can. Yeah, that kind of thing. I don't know. It, it, always, it always made me feel uncomfortable when people were using people's names to in derogatory ways. Just throwing that out there. OK, I'm not quite sure how to respond to that outside of the reminder that systemic oppression does not affect white people. So. Though it might be uncomfortable, for, it doesn't remove our so though it might empathy be un- that we can have for people. One right. Second, so though it might be uncomfortable for white people to be stereotyped in a negative way, it is not a form of disenfranchisement, nor is it a form of a derogatory hate speech. Because again, no one is being beaten in the streets, being called Becky. But just no because is, it's not the worst it can be, doesn't mean that it's also not contributing negativity towards a situation where negativity isn't necessarily required. So here's the thing, punching up versus punching down. Get all that. Right. If we are, if, if we're using joking and humor as a way of calling people out and mm-hmm. like literally anyone. And like naming a particular problem that has been, plaguing a vast majority of our society for a very long time and just putting a name on it. And that name just happens to be Becky or that name just happens. To what be if that name was John? What if we started calling Trump supporters Johns? We were like, look at all those fucking Johns over there. I, I, I don't know how that would make me feel, especially if you were sitting here using that word. You know what I mean? Start saying, and then 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 some John comes along and it's like John is already. A term, I know. Though. And yeah, it's. But is it, it's are we sitting context. here using it to describe somebody in a negative connotation Sometimes. while I'm sitting right here? Sometimes I have yet to experience that with yeah. you specifically, but that but that's because we haven't talked about the the topics that would involve that. Right. Right. What if it was a dean? You know, I, and I've thought about that and I think yeah. about it and like, OK, well, if I individually as someone named Dean, am not acting in the way that the stereotype the word yeah. is used to describe people's behaviors. And I don't care. Like Karen, for example. <laughs> right. So actually code switch another great podcast from NPR does a really great job of addressing this. And they have a white woman named Karen, who is one of the three hosts of the show. She's a tertiary host. So they have the two main hosts. And then she comes on as kind of a guest host um, very frequently. And one of the first things that she says is I am Karen, but I'm not that kind of Karen. Yeah. And she is the first one to address that she recognizes that, yeah, it kind of sucks that her name became synonymous with this particular type of behavior. However, she, as someone names, named Karen, goes out of her way to not engage in that behavior so that when people see her and see her name, it's more of like a, oh, haha joke. And they recognize that she is not engaging in the behaviors that would have her be stereotyped. So she's giving 
good feedback behind that name, but also recognizing that so many women with that name have behaved so poorly that it has become a stereotype that women named Karen are somehow always douchebags. Mm -hmm. And though she is the exception to the rule, she recognizes that she is the exception and she acts as an exception and recognizes that she is the exception, but she doesn't take offense to it because she recognizes that she is the exception. So you're only going to get butthurt about it if you are behaving the way that the stereotype is being explained as. So like if this is the behavior that you engage in. I don't think that's necessarily true. I would 100% push back against that. You could totally be innocent, be having your name used in a derogatory way and feel like, you know, it's not a nice thing and feel like you're not being included, feel like you're being discarded, feeling like you're being minoritized, as we say. Yeah. And that just because you don't you don't qualify for minority status, you therefore it doesn't matter that you're being offended by this. And therefore, we don't care about you. And we're going to continue to use your name in a derogatory way. And you don't get rights to to feel bad about it. But you're allowed to feel bad about it. Right. Absolutely. Well, what I'm sure asking is, is, is do we have a um, responsibility as human beings to care about these questions? And to care about the way that we're using words and how they're affecting people. And if we can, uh, if we are getting feedback that the way that we're using words is affecting people in a negative way, why should we not care about changing our language to be more inclusive and to not exclude people in a way that makes them feel uncomfortable? So like Vivica said, there, Mm. and, and I'm not going to expend my energy on discrimination that is resulting in someone's feelings being hurt over the result being someone literally losing their lives, losing their livelihood, or losing their ability to walk through the world safely. Is considering the words so, that we use expending energy, though? Well, yes, but I, I regularly do that or try to do that. But again, there is a difference between using the F word or using the T word What's- and the a slur that is generally used against transgender folks. You'll have to tell me off camera or maybe it doesn't matter. Yeah. But I am going to be focusing on groups that are systemically disenfranchised over people who are having their feelings hurt because other folks within that same who who share one thing in common with them are acting in an ill manner. I get that. Right. I get that. But if we are asking people to rise above and to be better about the language that they use and be more inclusionary with the language that they use and to not use terms that we find offensive, uh, are we maybe not being as convincing when we tell them, well, we still get to use words that maybe you don't dislike because you are not as high ranking on the minority list where you we care about you. Okay, so I have a really quick question. Yeah. How else like how would you like people to be called out for their bad behavior and what what do you think is an appropriate way for people to face consequences to their bad actions describe their bad actions and and criticize them for their bad actions without using a word that is a name for somebody that has nothing to do with those bad actions becky for example why is why are you why are you describing becky what does that even mean it becky is just a very blase very widely and commonly used name for white girls Mm. and so is karen Mm. And also almost across the board. So Becky is a very common name for white girls, but also Becky is a very common name for entitled white women. 
And their actions are almost always hilariously, almost cartoonishly entitled to the point where they will push like practically push black women under a bus just to get to their train faster kind of a shit. Like it's so cartoonish to the point where black women have just gotten sick of having to spend 20 minutes explaining why this particular white woman's behavior was so frustrating when it's like, ah, she was acting like a Becky as a black woman. As soon as you say that, I know exactly what behavior she was demonstrating. I know exactly how she was acting. I understand how it's useful. It does that make it right. But again, so it's one, not a hateful term. And two, it is a term describing a particular type of behavior. So if you are not engaging in that behavior, it's not directed at you. Yeah. Mm, I've, he- I've also- heard I've heard that exact language used to justify these kinds of negative terms for people that we would be very upset about hearing them being used like that. And, and, again, and it, it upsets me when we allow that to slip into our language but- and we don't hold ourselves to a higher standard in the hopes that we can be more convincing to a larger group of people when they hear us using the same negativity in the same kind of derogatory language that we are calling other people out for doing. But again, what. OK, John, mm. what's what is a derogatory term? Uh, a term that you're using to describe behavior that you dislike that applies to people who are not a part of that behavior, uh, a larger encompassing term. So, for example, saying that that somebody is the F word, right? Um, you're, you're saying that somebody is acting in a way and you're including all gay people in that and they're acting in a way that you dislike. If you dislike behavior that somebody's using, call it that specific behavior without using generalized terms for a group of people that includes other people that are not part of that behavior. So in what I'm words, hearing mm-hmm. is a term that's used to describe, mm-hmm. right, versus a name mm-hmm. that is an identifier for an individual. Mm-hmm. So for instance, me, my name is Dean. Mm-hmm. If there is, if that name is then used to describe a specific set of behaviors, mm-hmm. that word Dean takes on a meaning onto itself as opposed to being the identifier that I use for myself. My name is Dean, but that doesn't. Well, I get that. Okay. I'm fully aware of how that's working. I'm asking it. But here's the thing. Are we undercutting ourselves by doing that? Words hold power in different ways. Mm-hmm. But w- like, I'm, tr- I'm trying to think of a way to kind of like draw a parallel here. It's like saying you weaponized a sock against me versus you weaponized a shoe against me. One thing hurts and does way more harm than another thing. Throwing your sock at someone versus throwing your seven inch platform shoe at someone does different harm. I guess I'm asking a more fundamental question. Just because there are things that are more harmful doesn't mean that we should also be cognizant of the things that we are doing in our own language that are still harmful. Okay. So I agree. And I will be, and I am cognizant of the language that I use. And if we can choose to use different language, why shouldn't we try to do that? Okay. So I'm just going to pause right there. Uh, So here's the problem with that line of thinking and that question no matter what term we use to call out this behavior, it will always come back as that was derogatory. That was mean. Uh-huh. I don't like that. Is that, Whether, is that how I sound? Sometimes. Really? Yeah. Uh, the way you're asking this question a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. But typically the people who push back on this particular thing, 
That is 100% exactly how they sound. Uh, my feelings are hurt. She called me a name. Okay, so me calling you a poo-poo head and me calling you an actual fucking slur are two very different things. And yes, both might be mean, but at the same time, it if I say, okay, this woman was acting entitled, next thing I know, saying entitled is a slur. Nobody's saying that. Every time that... I'm talking a very specific situation. Okay. We, we don't have to use a slippery slope argument and say that that means other things. It doesn't. It's very specific no, to John, what I'm talking about listen now. listen to what I'm saying. I'm saying that any time that a minority has named the beast mm -hmm. that they are fighting against, the people engaging in that behavior have turned around and said, that is hate speech. That is a slur. That is derogatory towards us. However, it is us trying to name the behavior that is actually harmful for us. It's the behavior that is literally getting us hunted down and killed in the streets. It is the behavior that is getting us disenfranchised from jobs. It and is the, the behavior, behavior is awful and we should call out that behavior. But Nobody's there, arguing let, with that. But there's no way for us to call that behavior out without it turning around and being deemed as hate speech without it being deemed as a slur or without it being deemed as hurtful to them. And no matter what term you use, it's going to come back as, well, should we actually be using that word or should we actually be saying it like that? Or should we actually be like using that language? Maybe we should be kinder about it. And at this point, I'm going to be perfectly honest. I'm really sick of playing nice with my oppressors. Yeah. And it's really fucking frustrating that there is no right way for me as a black woman to express my frustration with behaviors that have disenfranchised me from so many aspects of a productive life. And it is so frustrating that every single time I have any sort of negative emotion about behavior that has actually harmed me, I get told I'm too angry or I'm being hateful or I'm just acting like my oppressors mm -hmm. when in reality I'm doing one one hundredth of the behavior of someone who is literally weaponizing their behavior against me and then turning around and using their weaponized behavior to say, oh, my God, look how mean she is and yeah. start crying. I already told you the story about how a white woman literally started crying after being incredibly racist to me and getting a room full of white people to turn against me and make me feel like literally tell me that I was the angry black woman in that room because I was upset that she had cornrows or no, she had box braids and her box braids upset me. But like I didn't even say anything and she already started an interaction with me and that weaponizing of white woman's tears against black women specifically is so tiring and so frustrating. And it is so upsetting that I can't say she's acting like a Becky without some fucking white person being like, Oh my God, you're being so mean or you should really be nicer to her or you're being too angry. Do you feel right like now. I said any of those things? Uh, yeah. You're implying a lot of it. 
And also, we. I have think to you're keep completely mind- missing my question, though, because I, I was not but, implying or saying any of those things. But John, yeah. we also have to keep in mind that this argument of "oh, you're hurting my feelings by calling out my behavior" is a way that white supremacy maintains its supremacy because it's acting as a distraction from all of the things that Vivica is talking about. I, I, I still Focusing, think you guys are missing what I'm saying, though. So hold on. Focusing on I. I hear that you're saying that we should be holding ourselves to a higher standard and we should be cognizant of the words that we use if we're going to ask other people to be cognizant of the words but that we use. But for a specific reason, not because I care about somebody who is oppressing somebody having their feelings hurt. I never once defended people who are oppressing people. What I'm saying is that we need to be aware of not including people who are not involved in that oppression because we want people who are not involved in the oppression to be open to our, our, our way of thinking. We yeah. don't want to turn people off and make people feel like we're going to treat other people in negative ways because we don't care about them. I don't see how that's helpful for our side. Because I think that a person who, like Vivica was saying, doesn't engage in these specific set of behaviors, who does share a name with this label that we have used to Mm. coin a specific set of behaviors, can say, okay, well, I recognize that this is happening, but I also recognize that I'm not engaging in this. So maybe it's not about me. That's great. And and I hope that people can do that. What I'm wondering is, are we uh, hurting our own messaging by not finding better words to use for that kind of thing? That's my question. And I think that that's a distraction. Okay. I think that there are bigger fish to fry. But also that goes back to my point of every time we have found different words to use, this exact argument is brought up over and over. And obviously I don't have the history to, to understand that because this is new to me. And right. I, I, but, but here's another thing that I'm, that I'm recognizing is that say somebody like me who doesn't have the life history to understand these things in the way that you're describing them right now is asking these questions in a totally genuine, like curiosity way and thinking, Hey, maybe if, if it were me, I might try to phrase this in a way that was more inclusive for people and didn't turn certain people off. And I'm getting a ton of pushback on that in a way that makes it feel like maybe I shouldn't even be asking questions and I should just like toe the line and, and do what I'm told. And it's like, people need to be able to understand these things in order to be able to communicate them to other people. If I'm gonna be able to communicate this to other people, I need to be able to understand it. And that starts with this kinds of conversation. So I use Does it this, not? I use this example during the summer when um, a family member brought up looting versus protesting. Right. And I said, well, when a child is being bullied over and over and over and over again, and they tell someone about it over and over and over again, and no one does anything to help this child, eventually this kid is going to snap and this kid is going to hit back. Mm. Right. Or this kid is going to do something to defend themselves. themselves. And then, and then the adults get involved and are like, that's not what you're supposed to be doing. You should be telling the adults. Right. And it's like, but I have been telling the adults right. and I have been doing what it's I need to do. It's a failure of the system to exactly. address the issues. Absolutely. And so basically what we're doing here is we're coming down on someone, someone's who have been disenfranchised over and over and over and over and over again, who have been fighting over and over and over and over and over again for equal rights to be treated like fucking human beings. And we're bringing up issue with, well, you're using the wrong words to talk about your oppressor and you're using the wrong words to talk about so this I, behavior. I, I don't, I'm not trying to phrase this in a way of trying to tell people you're using the wrong words. I think it should be different. I'm asking, is it worth thinking about how we communicate these issues? Because it may have an effect on how well they're received. That's all. That, I, I think so that's a fair question to ask. And anytime you try is, to cha- make change in the world, you should think about your messaging and how you're doing it. So I'm trying to understand how I can communicate this well to people. And that's why I'm asking these questions. Right. So it has 
been thought about and it has been reviewed and multiple other attempts at communicating this have been tried across the board. The problem is, again, every iteration of this previously has been shut down with. You know that. I don't know that. Right. But and that's why I'm asking the questions and you have to communicate them. So, John, you have to be quiet and listen to what Vivica's saying in order to hear her. So when you ask, are you being mean or are you potentially excluding a certain subset of people by using the term Becky or the term Karen? I'm saying this is the best term that we have found to date to not exclude huge swaths of people while also being able to get our message across because white people across the board have actually responded very positively to this because they recognize that this is in fact a behavior that they have seen plenty of Karens exhibit. Like if you have ever worked retail, you know that Hmm. a Karen has come in and demanded to speak to your manager (laughs) and her name is almost always Karen. And she has a short bob cut (laughs) that spiked the fuck out. And you know exactly what haircut I'm speaking of because you've fucking seen it. So like it became a stereotype because that particular type of woman has been so prevalent in our society. And her name just happens to always be Karen. And Because it became such a distinct thing that was so noticeable across the board with Karens, especially Karens with this particular type of haircut, you know, the moment she walks into your store or the moment she walks into your restaurant, there's going to be no way to properly satisfy her. And she's going to demand to speak to a manager. You know this. And even if you are the manager, if you happen to be a person of color who happens to be the manager, she's going to flip the fuck out and she's going to try and call corporate like You already know this, no matter what it is you try to do to appease her. And it has become so prevalent in our society and it has become so frustrating for all demographics of people who have experienced this behavior, especially people of color, that they've just started shorthanding it to Karen. Now, again, this is because most of the women who are like who are demonstrating this behavior have been actual Karens and That's not to say every single Karen, every single woman named Karen is going to exhibit this behavior. But in America, women named Karen, especially middle America, especially with a short bob haircut that spiked the fuck out, is going to exhibit this behavior. You can be almost assured that that is what you are looking at when she walks into the fucking room. And it's really frustrating because we're literally just putting a name on a stereotype that has become so common that it's actually comical. And it's a way for us to bridge the gap where as a person of color, I have been able to talk to my white friends and laugh about this with my white friends because they have experienced this from a Karen. So they know exactly the behavior I'm speaking about. And I don't have to like write a whole like 300, uh, like 3000 word essay about, okay, so here's the actual history behind it. Here's all of the like behaviors that I'm talking about. I can say, oh my God, this Karen walked in and they could be like, oh my God, did she have a bob cut? And Yeah, absolutely. She did. Did she ask to speak to a manager? Oh, yeah. Oh, she absolutely fucking did. Oh, my God. And then we laugh about it. And it's a way of relieving the pain for just a moment, but also reaching across the aisle to someone who might not have been disenfranchised the same way that I have, but they understand the frustration of dealing with that person. And they recognize that I'm not saying that all white women are Karens. And I'm not saying that all like white girls are Becky's. I'm saying 
when you exhibit this particular type of behavior, it is so entitled and it is so distinct that you know what this woman looks like off the top of your head, that you know the entitlement that she walked in with, that she walked out with, you know it in your fucking heart. And it is the easiest way for us to not only shorthand that, but also to not feel like we're being silenced by our white friends where I can say to all of my white friends, oh my God, this Karen, and they don't think that I'm using some sort of hate speech or slur. They're just like, oh yeah, no, I've absolutely experienced that. I've worked in service industry. I've worked in retail. I totally know exactly that woman. So it becomes an, it has become an easy way for us to actually have that intersectionality where black, white, and all other races have all experienced this particular type of behavior. And it's a naming of that behavior. And yes, we use an actual woman's name because it happened to be the most common name of the women that were engaging in this behavior. But it's also a way of making it easy to get that point across without it actually being hateful. Because I'm not saying that like, oh, fuck every single person named Karen. I'm saying I am fed the fuck up with women exhibiting Karen-like behavior. And it's really frustrating for me to have to deal with someone exhibiting this behavior. So when I finally am able to like blow off that steam with a friend and say, oh my God, this fucking Karen today, that that can be the entire statement. And they already know, oh my God, I'm so sorry you had to deal with that. And it allows me to vent and relate and not feel like I'm having to put myself in yet another box and censor myself around people. Does that make sense? It makes total sense. I still don't understand why you can't just call them an entitled bitch. That as well. I mean, yeah, but it also doesn't encapsulate all of the behaviors that the term Karen encapsulates. And also the fact that like you're using entitled bitch that comes back to, well, bitch is anti-feminist and it is like a sexist term. And it, there's all this other derogatory things behind just using the term bitch. Hmm. So Karen You're not using any derogatory terms. You're not using any slurs. You're not using any sexist or racist speech. You're literally just naming a specific set of behaviors. And it's a specific set of behaviors that everyone knows what those behaviors are to a fucking T. Are these conversations not worth having? They're worth having. It's just also really frustrating to have them in what seems like a constant rotation because it seems like every time I have had to explain this to a white friend, they've sat there and they've been like, oh yeah, okay, I get it. And then two months later, I say something about, oh my God, I fucking had to deal with a Karen today. Mm, Are we still calling them Karens? And it's, it feels exhausting is the problem. And so how am I going to get onto the same page with you and understand these things if I can't ask these questions because you've dealt with them with other people and it's been frustrating. If we're going to be able to to do this together, I'm going to be able to ha- I'm going to have to be able to ask these questions so that I can understand them. Right. And I'm answering your question and I'm taking the time and the effort to answer your question. It's also just kind of frustrating when half of the time that I'm 
answering your question, you interrupt me and start speaking over me. And you're asking more questions that are without letting me finish answering your question, your original question. So that's where it becomes exhausting. And I want to be able to engage and I want to be able to answer those questions. And I want to be able to absolutely give you all of the emotional energy that I have so that you can learn. But also sometimes like it just, I need a breather between those questions because though this is your first time asking me, this is my thousandth time answering it this year. And it becomes so much extra weight that sometimes I need to take a beat to be able to answer your question. So when you're, when it almost feels like you're jumping down my throat because you're asking me questions in rapid succession before I've had the chance to finish answering one, it becomes really overwhelming. And it's really hard for me to maintain enough emotional calm to be able to answer that question in a way that doesn't feel like I'm trying to attack you, which I'm not. Does that make sense? Yes. You want to take a break? Okay, so we are back. Uh, we had to take a little bit of a break there. Um, the conversation got a little bit rough, more specifically for me. Um, but I think it is worth pointing out that these conversations, especially around race, are not always going to be easy. And even when you love and respect the person that you are having the conversation with, sometimes triggers and baggage from previous conversations with people who are bad faith actors um, will still cause you to be upset even when you don't want to be um, with the person that you're having this conversation with. And as much as I want to have this conversation, I do want to engage with this topic and have this conversation with John and uh, anyone who is listening, it is worth pointing out that shit was really fucking rough for me for a second. And I, we had to take a step back and kind of have a little bit of a conversation off camera to reset and reframe where we were both coming from and hear each other a little bit better. Um, but everything that was said was said out of respect and out of love and out of trying to hear each other and meet each other on equal playing fields. Yeah, it has been a wonderful experience just doing this podcast. Um, when we first started out, we realized we were having these difficult conversations off camera and we, we decided we wanted to do this podcast in order to kind of have these conversations in a way that we could expose them to a bigger audience and also bring other people on who can teach us uh, about these, these issues. And uh, it's it's so important to recognize that it's not always going to be easy, you know, and and this is what makes these conversations so hard in the real world. And we're learning so much about how to do this and how, you know, sometimes you just need to st take a step back and reconnect and, and, and try to figure out, you know, where we're coming from and, and how our life experience has differed that's caused us to be having a different experience of, of a conversation. And you can never know that in, in, in real life, you know, what somebody's life experience has been until you talk to them, until you sit down with them and, and get to know them and, and really do these difficult conversations. And, and that's why this podcast is so important to me and, and, and I think you as well. And, and we're excited to continue to be able to do it even when it's difficult. And, you know, even if we can't always see eye to eye immediately or even overnight. It's like the more we can have these conversations and get to know each other better and get to know our life experiences better and get to know where we're coming from, the, the better we can understand these things and, and, and 
bring about positive change in, on these issues in the world. So really appreciate you sitting here with me, helping me work through this and Dean for being a wonderful guest in, in, in providing us perspective on this as well as we're working through this. And yeah, we still have quite a bit of interesting, exciting stuff to cover. So oh, I think we percent. should, I think we should get back to it. Oh, I think so too. I think that we should also maybe wrap up the topic that we yeah. left off on because we had a whole bunch of, uh, we did, we had a whole conversation, conversation. off <laughs> camera, but I think that there were a few key things that were worth reiterating on camera for the audience. Like, for example, I, again, want to reiterate that as emotional as this conversation may have been for me, I want for to make it all of us. Oh, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. For all of us. For all general. of us. I want to make it really clear that like, even when I'm using the term Becky or I'm using the term Karen or I'm saying white people or I'm saying like white women, I recognize that not all people named Karen, not all people named Becky, not all white women, not all white people exhibit the behaviors that follow that statement. But there have been very few avenues and very few things linguistically that have been able to allow me to express the frustration that I have experienced from a particular demographic. And I am going to be the first person to say I have plenty of white people that I love and adore and white women friends. And one of my closest friends in college was named Becca. And I would never have considered her a Becky um, because she didn't exhibit any of the behaviors or traits that is categorized by Becky in quotes. And I want it to be kind of explicit that when we're talking about these things in the podcast and when I bring these things up in the podcast, that I'm not talking about any one particular person. I'm trying to describe and give a shorthand to a behavior that I have seen and experienced. And I want to be able to acknowledge that this is a particular type of behavior, shorthand it, and then be able to continue to be listened to without having to give like a 5,000 word breakdown of what behavior I'm trying to discuss specifically and like which demographics and like which people I think are actually going to exhibit this behavior. Yeah. And, and I think that um, my understanding has evolved in the sense that, uh, you know, these, these things have developed naturally in language within, you know, communities that are able to use them to describe behaviors that are very um, difficult for them to deal with on a regular basis, coming from very specific subsets of other populations. And uh, as these uh, names have evolved to become associated with these behaviors, uh, it has not just been useful to describe it within uh, your own community, but also within other communities. And, and it's been very successful online. You know, Karen has become, you know, very well known to describe a very specific type of behavior. And, and it's easy on the outside looking in to just be like, well, even if that bothers one person, maybe there's a better word we could use for it and start, start to critique it and try to figure out like, what's the best way that we could describe this so that we're having the least negative impact on anyone. But that takes away sort of, um, some of the, uh, uh, the, the ownership of being able to, to derive these terms in a way that's useful for the communities that are being affected by them. And I don't want to come across as, you know, being just this outsider coming in and being like, well, I think you should, you know, fix your language and, you know, find a better way to do this. My approach to that to, was simply just trying to understand. And, and I think that we've had a really good conversation on that, that that's helped me understand why these terms are useful. Um, 
why it's important to continue being able to create your own terms for these kinds of things and 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 use them as as you see fit and that at the end of the day in order for people to be able to see eye to eye on these kinds of things we have to have these kinds of conversations and we have to be able to talk about it in a way that feels like we're not just attacking each other and telling each other this is how i think you should do it but like I don't fully understand, so let's talk about it and try to understand better. And that's that's how we all can get to a better understanding of this as a whole. And and so you know, we'd encourage you guys if if you're having these conversations in your life, try to do it in a way that that feels like you're being a genuine actor and not just telling somebody that you think they're doing it wrong and that you should that they should be doing it differently because that's totally discounting the life experience that has led them to uh, to to the language that they're using. And and you need to understand that life experience before you can you know have a, a good conversation on that so yeah this is this has been it's i think it's been valuable oh absolutely um i think that like this is definitely a topic where it's kind of been a sore subject for a lot of people but they haven't really known how to approach it or yeah. how to address it and i think that it's valuable to point out that in the black community specifically we have actively tried to find ways to name this behavior that has been weaponized against us, um, specifically the behavior of a certain type of white woman who has weaponized her tears against us, who has weaponized her whiteness against us, who has weaponized her womanhood against us. And that has become so exhausting for us to constantly explain over and over and over again when we know exactly who is doing it and we recognize again, not all white women are doing this. Not all white women are actively trying to harm the black community and they're not all out to get us. And that's not at all what we're trying to say, but we're just trying to name the behavior so that other people outside of the black community can say, Oh yeah, I get that. Oh, okay. I've totally seen that. Like you've seen a Karen. If you've ever worked in the retail industry, you've seen yeah. a Karen walk into your store and demand to speak to a manager because she's trying to use an out of date coupon or she's trying to return something without a receipt or she's trying to do something that is very clearly against the rules of that store. And she's pushing it to the manager. She's pushing it to the general manager. She's pushing it to corporate because she feels entitled to get her way. And we all know that behavior and it transcends race to have seen that behavior firsthand. And the names Karen and Becky have become shorthand for that level of entitlement and that particular type of entitled behavior that is being weaponized against people that they see as inferior, whether it is uh, retail workers, whether it's service industry workers, whether it is people of color, it's being weaponized against us in some capacity. And that weaponization has become a stereotype. And that is the term, like that is where we are getting those terms from. And it is not denoting any one person that's doing this or being used towards any one person. It is simply a shorthand. So yeah. Anyways, can we bring intersectional feminism back into this? Yes. Please. Amazing. John, you were talking about um, approaching conversations from a lens of keeping in mind that we all have different life experiences mm -hmm. and those different life experiences inform our lens of the world and our continued experience of the world. And that is what intersectional feminism is striving to do. Yes. Mm. 
addressing that we each come into experiences with a different set of background experiences, right? And we each have different facets of what make us who we are that individually act as building blocks to composite the whole, but that each individual person has a different set of blocks that they're right. composed of. Right. And so it's important to recognize uh, the the diversity. The diversity, the privileges, and the disadvantages that we each come to something from. Right. right? Like, mm-hmm. I'm a dual citizen. I'm able-bodied. I'm neurotypical. I'm white. I am also queer and a right. native English speaker. Um, like, there are so many different things that make up who I am that inform my experience. Right. That, yeah. Is it fair to say that that's um, directly pushback against the fact that feminism on its own uh, is not addressing those things? White feminism on its own. But, but, yeah. but, but I, when, I, when I mean the word feminism, like if you're just using the word, like, why do we need to see intersectional? Why can't feminism include those in other words? And, and I think that when we add another word to it, it's explicitly saying that feminism, the word on its own, is not doing a good enough job at including those things. And therefore, we need a second word to point out that those things are important. Well, I think the reason that intersectional feminism became a thing was because feminism, when it was first started as an ideology and as a movement, was founded by white women. And it was on the onset white feminism. And it very much ignored the needs and considerations of the black women and the trans women and the non-binary humans that should have been included in that umbrella because of the need for white women to kind of put themselves higher up in the hierarchy. And because feminism, when it was created, and that's very much in quotations, created, was created by white women, we needed to have a secondary term that ex- like that differentiates original feminism, which is now considered white feminism, versus what feminism should strive to be, mm. which is intersectional feminism. Mm-hmm. So the first, the second, and we're, we're in like third wave. Third, I want to say, yeah, it's like third, fourth wave fish. Mm-hmm. Um, first wave, please correct me if I'm wrong, was oh wow, the suffrage really? movement. Thank you. Yeah, I was thinking surrogacy, and I'm like, that is no. not, nope, not that even is not close. the word. No, nope, no, nope. not the word. It was a suffrage movement, right? And I would like to point out just. For our listeners at home, they were suffragists, not suffragettes. Suffragettes was actually the the derogatory term thrown at them by men as a means of being diminutive Mm -hmm. towards the suffragists who were just saying women are humans and we should be able to vote, too. Mm -hmm. So when you're referring to that movement, make sure that you refer to them as suffragists and not suffragettes. I didn't know that. Mm. Damn. Thank you. Yeah. Fun fact. (laughs) Mm. And for anybody who's not necessarily following along, because that is a complicated word, it literally just means the right to vote. Right. It's someone who was advocating for women to have the right to vote. But it doesn't just mean women's right to vote. Right. In this case, they were advocating for women. So so there was there was for women. And so because they were advocating for women to have the right to vote, men were like, oh, right. look at these oh, little right. suffragettes. Right. Look at these little, like, these little girls. Right. They're so cute. And so it was a diminutive term right. and suffragists actually really fucking hated being referred to as suffragettes. I had no idea. Now you know. 
Yeah. Fun fact. And second wave feminism was like 60s. Yep. Right. Was about sexual liberation. Mm. Burning the bras. Burning the bras. Keeping trans women out of quote unquote women only spaces. Mm. Um, and now third wave feminism, which hopefully can move towards intersectionalism. Yeah. That's so because thir third wave for feminism kind of started in the 80s where you had intersectionality being introduced. Mm -hmm. But I think that I, I would say we're at like 3.5. Yeah. Closer to four. Like because we recognize the difference between intersectionality and white feminism. And we also like as intersectional feminists recognize that it's not just about white women or it's not just about white and black women, that it's also about our trans brothers and sisters, that it's also about our indigenous brothers and sisters, that it's about every human should be equal on this planet. And really, at this point, our 3.5 to 4 should really be renamed as humanism and not feminism. Hmm. Because it's really just believing, do all humans have equal rights? Yes, all humans are humans and therefore should have equal human rights. Excellent. Welcome. That is that is the ideology that we are behind. Mm. Yeah. It's and there's no hierarchy. Yeah. It's interesting how like, and, and this ties into the conversation earlier, how no matter what term we choose to label what we want, people who don't agree with the ideologies or don't agree with what we're moving towards get stuck at the door. Mm -hmm. Right. So for instance, my father and I attempted to have a conversation a year and change ago about trans related issues and it, it it got real heated it did not go well it was like 10 p.m outside on a saturday night we were tired i am always triggered by trying to have intense conversations with my dad and at the beginning of the conversation he asked me to define feminism for him and I said, feminism is the ideology that all people, regardless of gender, deserve equal rights and equal access. And he pushed back on that with, OK, well, that's your opinion. And I was like, right, woof. right, right. Fucking and I was like, woof. well, dad, I am a woman in gender studies minor. I am a person who was assigned female at birth and walks through the world being affected by these issues. Yes, this is my opinion, but this is an opinion that was formed based off of the information that I have gathered and studied right so it, it was just and, and that like that back and forth kind of kept he like kept shoving at me so basically point being that like if you don't want to hear if you don't want to look beyond the veil you're just going to stand in front of the veil and refuse to to go beyond it you're just going right. to be like well there's the veil here well i think that that's that's been my my reason for um you know wondering about the terminology that we mm -hmm. use and mm -hmm. and wanting to ask the question for example in the case of feminism if using the word feminism is causing people to think that it's necessarily anti-men, for example, um, it, and we've talked about how like there's been different forms of feminism, and that's not necessarily immediately apparent to somebody who hasn't taken the time to study right. it. Um, so how, how do we come up with terminology that conveys, encapsulates what the movement is actually for to people who haven't taken the time to, to, to study it so that the first, the first uh, opinion they get of it isn't confused. But I think I think that the term feminism comes with the labels 
or it comes with the like the quote unquote baggage that the patriarchy kind of pins on it in order right. to deter people away right. from feminism. Right. right. Like and and it isn't necessarily out. So there's this interesting thing where it's like, OK, we're feminists. I'm a feminist. I believe in equal rights for everyone. But it's also like that's what I'm fighting for and that's what I'm striving for. It's not my responsibility to make this palatable to everyone. No, right, it's, not, right? it's not about it being a responsibility but, to make it palatable. It's about is there a better term that's more useful? So, so I think that, no, yeah, I think that comes back to where I mentioned before that I think that it really should be relabeled as humanism. Mm -hmm. That's why that's what brought up the question for me. Is because like, it started as the term feminism because again, like I said, it was white women pushing for equal rights as their male counterparts. Yeah. Right. So it's started specifically for women. So it made sense that it was feminism. But at this point, we have grown pretty far beyond that just white women deserve rights. We believe that all humans, regardless of race, regardless of gender, regardless of being able-bodied or not, regardless of whatever situation you were born into or transitioned into, you deserve rights because you are a human. And I think that at this point, if there was a rebranding campaign, and I think Emma Watson has actually pointed this out because Emma Watson is like the most delightful feminist that I fucking love her. She's adorable. And she has pointed out, she was like, yeah, I mean, yeah, I'm a feminist and you can like talk shit about that. But really, like, I'm just a humanist and I think that humans deserve rights and if you don't believe that humans deserve rights, I don't want to fucking talk to you. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that's a pretty fucking valid point of view. If you don't think that all humans deserve rights, are you a Nazi? I like just I just had a weird realization, though. How do we avoid making people feel like it's discounting the women's issues that are important by saying that, like, all people deserve rights. It's almost like saying all lives matter instead of black lives matter. I'm not saying it actually is. I'm just wondering, like, how do we differentiate that? Well, OK, so if we're saying all humans deserve equal rights, right? Mm. Who doesn't have equal rights right now? Right, right. You just have to look at who is being disenfranchised in this moment, who is the minority in this moment who is being left out of this conversation who is not sitting at this table right, right now and who do we need to bring to the table who do we need to enfranchise like who do we need to give more power to and when you look at it from that perspective you can easily say like okay i agree men have rights and men should have rights but men don't need the table right now men mm. have had the table for centuries and I want to hear the opinions of men. I believe that the opinions of men are valid to a certain extent, but I don't think that they are any more or any less valid than any other human speaking. And it's when men decide that, ah, well, I'm going to dictate what a woman should be able to do with her body because I understand how periods work. You can decide when to have a period, right? No, obviously you've never fucking spoken to a woman because if we could fucking decide when we'd have our periods, we'd never have our periods. <laughs> fucking Christ. This is like, why diversity in science is so important. Like we talked about with Olivia yesterday. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's difficult to come or oh, whatever. It's difficult to come, uh, to the conversation from a history of being spoken for. Right. Right. So intersectional feminism is about being more inclusive in who we're fighting for rights for. Right. And also just being cognizant of the voices 
that we are giving the platform to Mm. and prioritizing the most marginalized voices among us to be able to tell their story so that the people who don't understand where they're coming from. So the white people, and I mean, white people of all genders understand the plight of an indigenous person, specifically an indigenous woman who may have been sold into like sex slavery or who may have been disenfranchised in any other capacity. Cause like indigenous women are being kidnapped and disappeared at alarming fucking rates. And it's something that like no one is really talking about and being able to bring an indigenous woman to the table and ask, how can we help empower you Mm -hmm. is a lot more valuable than a white man speaking on behalf of an indigenous woman and bringing a trans person to the table and saying, how can we empower you? What can we do to help you is where intersexual fem intersectional feminism is a step up from the original version Mm -hmm. of feminism. Mm -hmm. Makes a lot of sense. But like speaking of intersectionality, I feel like Dean, you had a lot to say about gender the last time you were here. Oh, we're talking about gender? And like more specifically pronouns. Oh. Because like, I feel like we got to touch on that very shortly. We rushed through it way too fast. Yeah. And I definitely wanted to elaborate on that a lot more this time. Amazing. Can I actually pause? Yes. A moment. So I'm looking I'm looking at the the GoPro clock and it's saying 30. Yeah. And so I'm wondering if we want to talk about Amber Heard and just save gender. Oh. So we don't do another hour and a half because we know we can keep talking. Okay. That's actually pretty valid. Yeah, I do. You know what? Actually, I think you're right because like we did touch on gender before. And as much as I do want to like bring that back again, because we did touch on it last night with Olivia. Right. I think it might be more useful to touch on the Amber Heard. Yeah. And also it feels much, it, it feels really cohesive. You just want to come back for part three. That's, I what's, just that's really what's going on here. I mean, I'm, I'm just, I'm just going to call you out on that right here. I'm already <laughs> taking a picture of the board, y'all. I'm like, I'm saving this for the third go round. <laughs> He's going to be our most like reoccurring guest that I'm about it. this life. I love it. We're going to do an episode where we're only going to talk about gender yeah. and, and pronouns and and we're going to keep it under an hour and a half. We're going to keep it under an hour. Wow. Under, okay, under an hour no. and a half. Fine. Okay. No. I hate that hour time limit. All these podcasts do it. It just pisses me off. I always feel like you didn't quite get there. So in talking about intersectional feminism, I think it's also kind of worth touching on the Amber Heard and Johnny Depp situation um, because I feel like there has been a lot of misinformation and I feel like there have been a lot of like he said she said and like two sides about the situation and it seems like a lot of women are just immediately believing amber and that is what we're supposed to default to is like immediately believing the victim but maybe this is an unpopular opinion but i think that johnny depp was the fucking victim yeah like from everything that i've seen about this situation and like just looking at the pictures of Johnny Depp from the last few years, that man looks like he yeah. has been through the fucking ringer. Yeah. Absolutely. And like she was always looking motherfucking flawless. Okay, yeah. you you were abused, but like always on point. I think it's important before before we jump into this though to just point out that 
if if I may, um, I, I think it's important to point out with this is that we're not necessarily here to litigate the Johnny Depp Amber Heard situation Absolutely. and be able to decide who's right, who's the real victim, what's sure. really going on here. The the bigger question I think that this case brings up is can can uh, female presenting or signed female at birth people be the abuser in a situation yes. like this? Yes, yes, I fucking can. can. Oh my god! Like before I even, I'm I'm not. I'm gonna let you finish. <laughs> I might not even let you finish, but like. This is like a topic that has been like driving me fucking nuts for a very long goddamn time. Go off, time. Girl. Go off. Like, <laughs> just because you might have been born with a vagina or currently have a vagina or you might be non-binary, gender has nothing to do with your ability to abuse someone. Uh-huh. And just because... Oh, well, I'm the frailer gender. Fuck you, you fucking emotionally abusive piece of shit. If you are holding the fucking relationship hostage, you're a fucking abuser. If you're out here being like taking a tally as to like every single thing that you find wrong about the relationship and you're doing all of these things that are oddly very stereotypical in like media and movies about like how women like present themselves in relationships. The way that movies and media present women in relationships is fucking toxic and it's emotionally abusive as hell. And women and like when I say women, I mean assigned female at birth. I mean currently female bodied or female presenting or non-binary or just any fucking gender. And like not just cis men can be abusers. Yes, like historically cis men have been abusive and are more likely to be abusers. But fuck, cis men can absolutely be abused by their AFAB and or female bodied partners. And I have seen it firsthand where close people in my life have absolutely been abused by cis women. And it has driven me fucking nuts because I have tried to sound the alarm and tell people, especially in the sex positive community, yo, this woman is fucking trash. She is emotionally abused. The last three fucking partners she's had, she's left fucking devastation in her wake. Obviously she's not a great fucking person. Obviously she has like it. The problem is her, not her fucking partners, but because she cries a little bit and she like, (laughs) he was mean to me that one time. Okay. But like you spent five years being absolute shit to him. Of course he was going to be mean to you that one time because he was trying to reclaim his fucking power. But of course, because they are female bodied and or assigned female at birth, they get away with it and it drives me nuts. So how do we reconcile that with people saying, you know, believe the victim in the case of Amber Heard, you're supposed to believe the victim and she's presenting as the victim. Um, how, How do we work out those two scenarios? Well, I think that equating womanhood and victimhood automatically is kind of an issue, right? It's like just because she's just because this is a a hetero pairing that we're looking at and she's the woman in this situation doesn't mean she's automatically the victim. Yes, believe women. Yes, believe victims. But also look Look at the the evidence. And if there's substantiated evidence 
that shows that this woman is abusing her partner, mm-hmm. which there seems to be a significant mm-hmm. amount of evidence Whoa. that like she's abusing Johnny Depp and taking all of his fucking money. Yeah. It's like, well, then who is actually the victim here? She right. ruined his fucking career. Did he just lost his contract or something. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But Harry also, Potter. okay, let's Grindelwald. look at a, Let's look at a different situation of abuse that we know for a fact who was the abuser. So Chris Brown and Rihanna. Mm-hmm. We know right. for a fact Chris Brown beat right. the shit out of Rihanna and sent her to the fucking hospital. Right. We know for a fact Chris Brown was the abuser. Yeah. What happened to his career? Oh, nothing. Oh. He still has a whole ass goddamn career. <gasps> He's still fucking making money. He's still fucking having no fucking repercu- like repercussions. And Rihanna's career dropped for a second. And like she had to rebuild her career back up. Which she's done an amazing job. Oh, she's I, done I, a, I, like, I, yo, she's. Don't be knocking Rihanna. <laughs> no, 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 Let no, me no. finish my <laughs> sentence, sir. <laughs> She has rebuilt her career bigger, faster, stronger, harder. Thank you. Like she is making so much more money than Chris Brown at this point. Like fuck Chris Brown. But at the same time, I'm her number one fan, by the way. No, you're not. I am. Absolutely. You want to fight me on this? Sure. I mean, I will win. It sounds like Dean said, "Cash me outside." <laughs> That'll be on our after dark episode. <laughs> Subscribe to our OnlyFans here, exactly to watch us throw down. It's gonna be naked, y'all. Facts in oh a pool God. of jelly. Yeah, I, I was. I was just gonna. Yeah, I. I was imagining you standing over us, just like pouring bottles of oil. Yes. Yes. Amazing. A minute. Yes. You know those like uh those like what is it? Like the drums of lube that you can buy on Amazon. Oh the God. Crisco sized oh shit. Oh no, God. like the actual drum. Five like, gallon drum of lube. No, no, no. I mean fifty gallon oh, 50. drum. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. The I kind you can these. fit in. Yeah. Yeah. Like the human sized drum that you can hot, buy on hot, Amazon. Hot. I mean, like we're gonna have like lube wrestling it's gonna be great anyways so like if you look at that situation right rihanna was very remiss to actually say that chris brown fucking abused her Mm -hmm. it wasn't until she was literally physically put into the hospital and pictures of her face fucked up yeah and bruised came back and she was like yeah i guess i can't hide this shit anymore it was absolutely chris brown right nothing happened to his career nothing but then all of a sudden amber heard comes out and is just like johnny depp was mean to me he gaslit me and he was just emotionally abusive (laughs) and all of a sudden he loses his fucking career what do you think the difference is I think the difference is that like abusive people are very adept at being emotionally manipulative. Mm. Not all correct, Mm. but like a lot of, a lot of abusive people are very good at being emotionally manipulative. And I think that Amber Heard was able to sway and emotionally manipulate the public in a way. And like, here's the thing that a lot of abusers and like specifically narcissistic abusers do like this is is a particular uh, thing that narcissistic abusers lean into. Um, They project their behavior onto their victim Mm. where (laughs) they will say they will take their own behavior and be like, my victim has done exactly what I've done to them to me. (gasps) Oh, 
Oh, where's my fainting couch? I'm just such a victim. Oh, who's the projector in chief? Oh, God, I hate him so much. Like, who's the projector? Trump, this is this is what Trump does. He's constantly oh, projecting that, like, these behavior. people are doing this to me. And it's literally because that's what he's doing. Right. Well, OK, so Trump is a textbook malignant narcissist. And like at this point, the I know it's like really uncouth to diagnose someone unless you have been their personal therapist for a very long time. But I'm just going to go ahead and say <laughs> we have had to deal with this motherfucker in the public eye for the past four fucking years. And if you have ever looked through the goddamn DSM for more than 10 minutes and you've looked through the cluster B disorders, you will know that that motherfucker has antisocial personality disorder, otherwise known as malignant narcissism. Was it Jackie that wrote on Facebook or somebody tweeted something about like, y'all oh, are, are acting like you've never broken up with a narcissist before or something like that. exact quote yes, was, please. some of y'all have never had to escape an abusive relationship and it shows. Yeah, yeah. I thought that was really on point. Mm -hmm. And the next couple months are going to really, that's going to play out. That would be awful. Vivica, do you remember a few years back when I was getting out of my relationship with my ex? Uh-huh. And um, I, I hadn't, I had brought this specifically to my um my platonic partner Val and I mm -hmm. had said something about being concerned to bring up my concerns essentially right. with my partner and Val said well if you're afraid to discuss your feelings with your partner that's a big ass red flag yep. mm -hmm. and I got the fuck out within uh, like a couple of weeks of that conversation but when I had brought this to you Vivica you had reminded me that assholes come in every gender and it's one of those things that when you're looking at someone who is female presenting or female bodied or assigned female at birth, it is very easy to give the benefit of the doubt mm -hmm. to that person of, oh, well, maybe, maybe they didn't really mean it that way. Or, you know, maybe it was just like their traumas coming out. And like, again, that is real and that right. does happen. And when you have been abused and a lot of times people who are assigned female at birth or people who are female presenting have gone through a lot of trauma and and it's really hard to like get through life as a femme-bodied person and not experience a whole bunch of trauma. However, your trauma is not an excuse for you to harm others. Mm -hmm. And allowing your trauma to dictate how you treat others is an excuse for abusers. And I think that, yes, there should be some leeway given like, oh, they had a rough childhood or, oh, you know, like they had a really rough upbringing. Their teenage years were really awful, et cetera, et cetera. Cool. Get them therapy. Hmm. Yeah. You are not their therapist and you're also not their fucking punching bag. And you do like, I don't care who the fuck you are. You do not deserve to be treated as second rate or deserve to be treated as someone's punching bag. Mm -hmm. You don't deserve to have their emotional baggage offloaded onto you in any sort of capacity. And like you get to choose how much of their baggage you want to take on. And there are a lot of red flags that we can discuss as to like what type of red flags are typical with most abusers. And I personally am very well versed in narcissistic abuse, particularly. Um, but narcissistic abuse isn't the only type of abuse that people might face. It just happens to be one of the most common. And I feel like having gone through four years of a Trump presidency, we should all be very familiar <laughs> with what narcissistic <laughs> abuse looks like. 
Have you experienced gaslighting? In fact, let's go ahead and define gaslighting because I feel like a lot of people have heard this term, but don't actually know what it means. And gaslighting actually comes from like a like 1940s movie um, called The Gaslight, where this husband and this husband had this particular gaslight that he would turn on, his wife would see it on, and he would lie to her and say, oh, no, it's not on. And then he would turn it off when she would look back at it and make her question her reality to the point where she felt like she was going fucking crazy because she kept seeing this gaslight being on. Is it a true story? Is it like a fictional? Well, it's a movie. It's a movie. Okay. It's a movie. But like she kept seeing it on and Hmm. he would tell her, no, it's, it was never on. I didn't turn it on. No, like it hasn't been on this whole time. And then she looked back at it and it was off. And so she got to the point where she thought she was insane. She thought she lost her fucking mind because she was taking him at face value and she was listening to him. But in all reality, he was absolutely controlling every part of that scenario. He was turning the light on and off. He knew he was turning the light on and off. He knew he was lying to her about whether or not the light was on. And he knew that by telling her a lie about the light, that it would cause her to question her own reality and destabilize her to the point where she would no longer be able to question whether or not her view of reality was real and only rely on his view of reality. Do you think that's what Amber was doing with Johnny? I mean, I don't know if she was gaslighting him in particular, but I feel like she was gaslighting the media overall because her portrayal of what has been going on in their relationship seems to be falsified. And that falsified information or that falsified narrative is literally the definition of gaslighting. Mm. And we've seen Trump do it over and fucking over again, where he will be on video saying, I'm going to grab them by the pussy and then turn around and be like, I never fucking said that. There were so many people at my inauguration. Right. More than I had had the biggest numbers. He literally tweeted just a few days ago. I won. Okay, buddy. How's that different from just lying? I guess it's lying where it's obvious that you're lying. Well, the thing is, so (laughs) gaslighting is a type of lying, but is a type of lying that is meant to make the person you're speaking to question their reality. Mm. And if they question their reality enough, they will see you as the only person telling the truth. Uh, I see. And if you are the only authority on truth, you can then tell them anything. Right. Yes. That makes sense. And it's meant to destabilize. How do you fight back against that? Honestly, have a third person that you can talk to about Mm. your relationship who is going to be neutral in the sense that like, if you're fucking up, that person will tell you, no, you fucked up. I think I I realized I I actually need to rephrase that. It's not how do you fight back against it. It's how do you identify it? Because if that is actually what's happening in your relationship, you shouldn't be fighting back. You should be walking away. Okay. But like, right. It's the same answer. No, no, your answer is correct. But I realize that my phrasing of it, it kind of misconstrues like what you should actually be attempting to do here, because what you should be attempting to do is identifying it, which is what you just described. That's how you identify it. Right. 
but but the, the the result isn't to fight back it's to get away <laughs> well i, you mean, know I mean yes so the result should be to get away but i want to point out that getting away isn't always an option mm. for people because like if you have kids mm, or if yeah. it is if things are more complicated if you are you have had your financial independence taken away from you in some capacity where you now rely on this person for shelter or for like income or what have you. That's why we need a UBI. Just throwing that out there. Uh, I believe that. I, that's a beautiful reason to have UBI. Yes, Absolutely. Um, but there are a lot of complications as to why walking away isn't always an answer. Yeah. But being able to maintain your sanity is something that you can always fucking do by having a secondary person. Yeah. And ironically, or maybe not so ironically, um, maybe more coincidentally, narcissistic abusers recognize the people in their victims' lives. Ooh that are the most likely to keep them sane mm. and will try to isolate you from them. Yes. Yeah. So when you have a partner in your life who is telling you your best friend or a particular family member or someone that you have been close to since before this relationship started is bad or is a bad influence or you should distance yourself from them. Yeah. You should really question what their motives in isolating you from this person are. It's a good red flag. Because honestly, if they genuinely care about you and they genuinely love you, there should be no reason why they should want to isolate you from the people closest to you in their life, yeah. in your life. Yeah. And when you start to feel isolated or when you start to feel like you've lost friends because of a relationship or you've lost touch with a majority of your friends because of your relationship that in itself is a really big red flag but even before you get to that point if your partner is constantly talking shit about all of the people that you are close to run yeah just fucking run like especially the people that you know for a fact have always kept you grounded and have always kept you sane and have always been very level and honest and open and trustworthy people those are the people that narcissistic abusers hate yeah and it's really funny because like when narcissists come up against me and like meet me they either try to get really close to me or they just talk mad shit about me and try to ruin my reputation to whomever they're trying to isolate from me and it's just really funny to watch them do one of two things because i'm like because the thing about narcissists like textbook and we're talking about textbook like narcissistic personality disorder narcissist not just someone who's kind of feeling themselves from time to time two different types of narcissism it's when i come across someone who is a textbook narcissist they're the most predictable fucking people you can like clockwork like you can set your fucking clock with their behavior but in the moment especially when you're very close to them and you are the person that they are like focusing their abuse on their behavior always seems very erratic and it always seems very unpredictable and it always seems out of left field but from a third party perspective no it's super fucking predictable once you know their motivations you know exactly what the fuck they're gonna do and their motivations are always i want attention and they do not differentiate between positive and negative attention mm. any attention except for neutral attention mm. is good attention neutral attention is always 
always hostile attention and hostile attention will be met with hostility always. That is like an across the board set in stone thing. And then if they can get positive attention from you, they will mirror your behavior and your likes and your dislikes as much as possible to get to charm you into not seeing their true behavior until they've got their hooks in you. And once they've got their hooks in you, they feel like they can treat you however the fuck they want. And once you've gotten to that point, it's very difficult to disengage with them because they have become a drug for you. And it develops slowly over time. It's never an overnight thing. It's never something that you can like. Sometimes you can see it on the first or second date, but you have to really fucking know what you're looking for. Otherwise, you're going to miss it. You're going to discount it. You're going to say it's a one off situation. And then three years later, everything they've done has always been a one off situation, but it's always been the same motivation as the underlying factor. They wanted attention and they weren't getting all of the attention in the room. And so they needed to start some sort of big dramatic thing so that they can get all of the fucking attention. And if you're not catering to them and you're not defending them, then you're an awful person and they're going to guilt trip you and make you feel like shit. Why do you have such uh, experience with narcissists? Mm. So my sister, my biological sister, um, had narcissistic and borderline personality disorder. And the way that I describe her, she was five gallons of crazy in a three gallon bucket. And ain't nobody got time for a mess like that. And when I tell you, like, she checked every fucking box in the DSM. Like, What's the DSM? Uh, the diagnostic. Di- diagnostics. Thank you. The diagnostic statistic manual that all therapists and psychiatrists. Yes. It's like a psych evaluation. Yes. Tool? And the, the DSM it, is not perfect. No. The DSM is a manual that has been aggregated over. We're currently in the fifth edition that has been Five. aggregated. You, over the course of uh, well, since psychiatry started, when was the first one? The 60s, the 70s? I want to say the 60s or the 70s. Yeah. yeah. And it is reviewed and revised every decade or so. And Ish. it basically yeah. aggregates all of the mental health diagnoses and all of the the markers that fall under that. So right. So that's what I was talking about earlier with Trump, where if you look in the DSM, malignant narcissism is something that like if you have the big, big DSM, which is like most people do not casually have the big DSM in their house Um, because like one, it's like one hundred and fifty bucks or some shit like that. And two, most, why would you have it? Yeah. Why would you fucking have it unless yeah. you're like literally in the psychology or psychiatry field? Yeah. But I actually have the like little mini DSM. And in the mini DSM, they like the cluster B disorders. They didn't shorthand them because the cluster B disorders are narcissistic personality disorder, histrionic personality disorder, borderline personality disorder and antisocial personality disorder and antisocial personality disorder fits Trump. But the thing is, those four disorders, any of the four can be comorbid. Thank you. Comorbid. Fuck. Comorbid. (laughs) I was like, what is this word? They can be comorbid. So any of the four can be comorbid, which means they coexist. Right. So that is how my sister was both narcissistic and borderline and narcissistic personality disorder is denoted like 
the big, like broad, broad strokes of narcissism is you have a lack of empathy and narcissists can feign empathy for short periods of time, but do not actually show genuine empathy and cannot actually feel genuine empathy. They also have an inflated sense of grandeur. So they think that they are the most important people in the world, even at the same time as saying they recognize that they are complete shit and they think they are the worst people. They still think they're more important than everybody else. And they still think the world revolves the fuck around them. Can I add a little bit onto that? Yeah. Whoa. So from Amber Heard to narcissism, um, Was that because like that's kind of what's enabling her to get away with this shit? I don't want to say get away with because I also I I I don't know. I'm afraid to act like we like I actually know what's going on. It's more just like in generalities. This is what enables somebody in that situation to get away with this shit. Right. So a lot of the characteristics of and like I've done just like the tiniest amount of digging. Like I haven't like looked super super deep into this situation. But the reason that I brought this up is because a lot of the trademarks of narcissistic abuse are present with the Johnny Depp Amber Heard situation. Right. And it seems like she is the narcissist in this situation. And it's very, very plausible that Johnny may actually be a borderline. And the thing about narcissists and borderlines are they are the peanut butter and jelly of crazy town. Well, I was going to say they could be like they're both just contributing to each other's well delusion to a certain degree. Narcissists and borderlines magnetize towards one another and they give each other just enough of what the other seeks that they kind of keep revolving around each other like two black holes spiraling. Mm, that's um, dark. So it's eventually they will destroy one another, but it's very difficult for them to actually disconnect. It's not impossible, but fucking difficult. I have a question. Yeah. So we've talked about how to avoid this in our relationships with other people. How do we avoid this behavior in ourselves and how do we recognize it and and attempt to make sure that we're not exhibiting this kind of behavior? Because, I mean, do narcissists know, hey, I'm a narcissist, I'm doing all these things or are they completely some oblivious do. to it? Some so, do and some don't. And so, can, can we be like somewhat having some of these things and not being completely? Yeah. So great question. Some people are narcissists and they do recognize that they are doing these things. They're a little bit more on the Machiavellian side, mm-hmm. but a lot Sadistic. of narcissists. Mm-mm. Oh, no, Machiavellianism no. is manipulation. Yeah, it's not sadism. I just meant that they're aware that they're hurting people and they're doing it on purpose. That's no. Machiavellianism because it's like purposeful manipulation mm. and yeah. like okay, purposeful manipulation without regard to the outcome for the other person. Right. Okay. For their own gains. Okay. That's not sadism. Sadism is I am trying to hurt or harm you and I get joy out of hurting and or harming you. And if you are pathological in harming someone, and we talked about this in the kink episode that like hurting someone is great as long as it's consensual. Harming someone is never okay. And if you are pathological in your desire to harm someone that actually is classified under the um, antisocial personality disorder. Mm. But the easiest way to recognize, hey, am I, am I fucking up? Am Mm. I shit? Am I the baddie? 
am, yeah, am I the baddie in this situation? Narcissists can never take accountability for their own actions. And even when presented with more than enough evidence to prove that they are in fact the baddie in the situation, they are incapable of actually taking full responsibility and accountability for their actions. They can take shallow levels of accountability if it benefits them in the long run, but they cannot take full accountability and they will still try to place the blame on someone else or at least part of the blame on someone else as they're taking any level of accountability. If you are concerned that you might be displaying narcissistic traits, definitely take a look at your behavior and say, you know, have I been taking someone else's emotions into account? Have I been taking their triggers into account? Have I been hearing them out in a meaningful way? Have I been taking responsibility for my fuck ups? Have I been apologizing for my fuck ups in an actual meaningful way? What can I do to make sure that I am showing as much empathy to the person that I am engaging with as possible? And what can I do to be as uplifting to this person as possible. Because if you are actively trying to be uplifting towards someone, you might fuck up. But if you can recognize your fuck up and take responsibility for it and take accountability for it and apologize for it sincerely and change your behavior, because an apology without change behavior is just emotional manipulation, Uh Mm. then you're not being the baddie, you're just being human. And in the show notes, We are absolutely going to link a few articles about what narcissistic abuse looks like. Um, We're definitely going to link a really fun little video that shows like what toxic behaviors in relationships look like. That video is awesome, by the way. That was fantastic. I'm really glad you liked it. And we linked it in um, one of the other episodes, but we're going to link it again because it cannot be overstated this it's like a two minute video that like very much breaks down a lot of toxic traits and a lot of toxic behaviors and we're also going to link like just the dsm breakdown of narcissism and narcissistic abuse so that you can like look down the checklist and be like hey have i engaged in any of these behaviors and if so how do i change my behavior so that I can stop doing this? And how do I take accountability for the people that I have caused harm to via these behaviors? Mm. Definitely check out those links. This has been great, y'all. I'm so happy that we had you here, Dean. glad that I got to be here. You're just the best. Oh my God. Thank you. I'm really looking forward to a third round. Yeah. Cause apparently we're going to have to bring you back for part three because Yo, we got through like three of the seven topics on the board. <laughs> We've tried so hard we to really get through did. all of them, but like, fuck, like you get me on a tangent about narcissists and I'm going to talk about <laughs> this for like five hours. So I think that you should do an entire podcast about narcissism and you should have someone on who is a narcissist and Ooh, is, a, is aware of it and has education to back it up. Whoa. I have someone specific in mind. I, I mean, don't think if he, I don't know if he would do it, but I have someone in mind. I'll talk to you all oh, about this later. Throw yeah, you're, them you're, at you're us. definitely going to have to tell yeah. me yeah, that yeah, yeah. person off camera, but like, wow. okay. There, I, I legitimately have not met in my personal experience a narcissist who has, like, most narcissists will openly admit that they are narcissists if you ask them, which mm-hmm. is just. Mm-hmm 
really fucking funny. If you're ever wondering, is the person that I'm dealing with a narcissist? Ask them. Really? So also we we do have to take into account that like personality disorders differ from general diagnoses. Correct. Um, there's It's a yeah. spectrum. Yeah. Mm. Right. There's everything from subclinical to Jesus, fuck, you are so textbook. It's not even funny. Human yeah. beings are messy. Yes, we you know? are. It's hard to put we're people in. We're messy and we're complicated. It's hard to box people in and, and, and yeah. be accurate with it, you know? Yeah. Right. Okay. I want to eat my French fries. Okay. It's time for dinner. We've it's been, we've been at this all evening. If you're still hanging around at this point. I hope you are. Thanks for thanks for enjoying the conversation with us. We'd love to hear from you. What are you guys working on today? What's going on? What did you think of this conversation? Did you have any thoughts or comments? Please let us know. Am I just like the angry black girlfriend that you're sick of hearing from? Or did I actually explain things in a way that like made you feel okay about stuff? Or... Did you feel like I was harping too much on narcissists and you think I should give them a break? I'm not gonna. Do narcissists deserve a break? Do men deserve rights? Ooh, ooh, don't get me started on that one. <laughs> we don't have another three hours in this podcast. Maybe next time we can talk about that in our Maybe gender issue. Let's do it. All right. Awesome. Thanks for hanging out with us, guys. Thanks, Dean. Thank, Thank you, Dean. We will see you all here in the next one. Have a great, great rest of your day. Bye. Thanks for checking out this clip from our show. To watch more clips or full episodes, click on our profile below. If you want to stay up to date on all of our new episodes and videos, click subscribe. And if you have any ideas for future guests or topics that you would like to see us cover on the show, leave us a message in the comments or connect with us on any of our social media channels at Funtime Program. Or on our website at FuntimeProgram.com. We'll see you in the next one. Bye-bye.